Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Coming up on Bridging Philly, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And since the pandemic, many people have been taking stock of what's important in their lives and they've been making some moves to better their lives. Motivational speaker Joy Morgan shares some insight as to how to move past the pandemic challenges. Use your setbacks as a setup for your comeback. Sheridan Howard has our newsmaker this week. So I want to create that space where I can fully fit in and I want to create spaces for other people and let them know that they can completely fit in as well. Antoinette Lee's Changemaker is making a big impact in the community. It's all coming up on Bridging Philly. Welcome to Bridging Philly. We've spent two years pretty much stressed out, not knowing what is on the horizon. COVID-19 has forced a lot of us, though, to kind of take a step back and take a look at our lives and do some reevaluation. A lot of people, they've made some choices, changing jobs. Some people have made a choice to maybe start a family. Others have perhaps decided to retire. In any event, as we continue to navigate these uncertain waters of what we're hoping to be an endemic pretty soon to come, hopefully, Life has to continue. With us today is Joy Morgan. She is an inspirational and much sought after speaker. She's a business coach, pastor and founder and CEO of Joy Morgan Ministries and Joy Morgan Motivates. She's pretty good at helping entrepreneurs make their next move. And she's here with us on Bridging Philly. Welcome, Joy. Oh, welcome. Thank you for the welcome. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we are excited to have you because, uh, you know, as Restrictions are lifted and we're starting to stick our toes outside a little bit and breathe each other's air and see faces and experience things once again. I think a lot of people are ready to make changes, do something different. You know, we're talking about people, we've, we've, they called it the great resignation or the great job change. People are really starting to take a look at their lives and, and make changes. But before we get into that, I'd like to talk a little bit about you, Joy. As a little girl from the Delaware Valley Uh, become interested in motivational speaking? Wow, it's been a journey. The truth of the matter is I went to school for civil engineering. And uh, through that program, went to the University of Delaware. And while I was there, I found myself, first of all, being the only one that looked like me. I was um, definitely in the minority as a Black woman. And so as I went through the program, I realized that around my junior year, civil engineering was absolutely not for me. Mm. But I'm not a quitter. (laughs) So I actually finished the program knowing that this was not my purpose purpose and my destiny. So what I did was I went back to school to get my master's degree in education administration. And there I helped to develop programs to help to get minorities and women in the fields 
of math, science, and engineering. And so while I was creating those types of programs, I realized my favorite part of the job was actually motivating students to be their best. And as I would stand before them in classroom settings and even across from them in counseling sessions, I realized, you know what, I think this is actually what I was born to do. And I have to admit, I would sit at my desk and find myself uh, looking up videos of the likes of Les Brown. And I remember saying to myself one day, that's what I want to do. That's what I was born to do. And so as I uh, continued on in that position, I remember one day getting a, a card that said, success is loving what you do and doing what you love. Mm. And it was at that moment that I realized perhaps I'm not successful. And so that was kind of the birthing of me evolving into a motivational speaker. Wow. But how long have you been doing this at this point, Joy? I guess now in one way, shape or form, I could say I've probably been doing this over the last 20 years. Um, I was doing it more as hard work. But um, in the last six years, I began to do this as my full time job. And so as I transitioned out of teaching math and again, you know, creating programs for uh, minorities and women, it was probably in the last six years that I really began to launch out into entrepreneurship and motivational speaking. Well, we certainly all need motivation, Joy, but you are the person that motivates others. Who or what (laughs) motivates you? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I was thinking about that to myself the other day. I said, well, who motivates the motivator, right? Right. Um, I am a faith leader, as you mentioned in uh, my bio, a pastor. And so I have a firm faith in God. But also, um, I again, I look up the likes of Les Brown and Joyce Meyer and uh, Lisa Nichols and people like that who really, you know, I'll turn them on. Uh, I love Eric Thomas is another one that I use. And then I have close family um, and friends friends that I rely on that help me to get motivated because sometimes the motivator absolutely needs motivation. <laughs> absolutely. I, I could imagine. You know, it, it, this is not something that everybody can do, Joy. I, 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 there are certain people that I see, you mentioned Les Brown, and there are some people that are, you know, on, that are popular on the, uh, on the internet and, and on the social mm-hmm. media that, that motivate people. And, and everybody can't do that. What do you think mm-hmm. it is? What's special? What does it take for someone to be able to lift people up and, and actually motivate them to following their dreams? Yeah, I believe it starts with your own personal journey. And I think what really, really drives my passion is the fact that I've been there and I've done that. And so I know that what happened to me can happen for others. And for me, it's a passion because I feel like I need to pay it forward. I remember what it was like to be in a position, to be in a job that just wasn't it wasn't purpose. And so once I found it, it's like, you know, when you find that good sale, you know, at the mm-hmm. store, you want to tell everybody about it. When you find that great food item or whatever it is, you want to tell everybody. And that's kind of how I approached my business and, and what I do as a motivational speaker. It's just my way of paying it forward for what, you know, I've experienced. And I just feel like life is worth living and we should live it to the fullest. I don't believe that we should just be existing. I believe there is absolutely more to life Mm. than just existing. And so if I can pay that forward to people, um, that's what drives me. And that's what gets me up in the morning. I feel like purpose wakes me up in the morning, not my alarm clock. I could do this all day. (laughs) You mentioned purpose several times already. And, you know, it's interesting. You said you, you, you discovered that this was your purpose and that this is what you're going to do. But, you know, I don't know if it comes at a certain age or, or what sparks it, but how does a person go about discovering what their purpose is? Such a great question. People ask me that all the time. And so one of the first things that I, I ask my clients who come to me with that question, how do I know what my purpose is? Well, the first thing I always ask is, what could you do all day, every day and not get paid for it? And I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's baking cookies, clipping coupons. I don't care what it is. What could you do all day, every day and not get paid for it? And the other thing is, I believe that we were all created to solve a problem here 
here in the earth. I think we're all born for a solution. We're here to solve a, a situation, a problem. And so I ask it this way, what is the thing that seems to bother you that doesn't bother those around you? Uh, for some, it might be homelessness. For some, it might be you know those who are youth and, and just can't seem to find their way or those who are you know addicted to substances or whatever it is. And so whatever that thing that seems to bother you that you just, it doesn't let you rest. I usually say your purpose is wrapped up in that somehow, some way. So that's usually the direction I kind of take people in as I begin that line of questioning. Wow. Wow. You know, so many businesses during the pandemic failed, but then Mm -hmm. again, you have people as they reevaluate, they may be thinking, you know, I'd like to start a business, but I don't know if now is the time to do it. If so many businesses have failed, people are skittish. People are not, you know, they're they're a little worried about, you know, what's in the future because we just don't know what's coming down the pike. But I guess you can't really let fear hold you back. What do you, what do you tell people, especially now as we are sort of coming out of this pandemic and they want to start something new? How do you advise them? You know, the first thing I say is if the, if this pandemic didn't teach us anything else, uh, we don't have as much time as we thought in terms of, you know, we're losing loved ones. We're, we've lost our jobs. You know, the, the thing that we probably should have let go has <laughs> let go of us. And so I believe in seizing a moment. I always say this, that the window of opportunity is not obligated to remain open to us forever. I really mm-hmm. believe that. And so if you've got this sensing, it's something in your knower to say this this is the time, then I really believe that that's your sign to go for it. There's a little acronym that I've been using over the last year um, in terms of how to start a business and and the elements and the principles needed. And I call it my cash method. I've been using this as uh, just a a foundation for those who are looking to start. And so the first thing, if I use C-A-S-H, it's C, coaching, because the truth of the matter is how I became successful as an entrepreneur is I got some coaches. I had a speaker coach. I got a business coach. So coaching is is huge. Find a coach that'll help you to do it. The next thing is aim and attack. And, And, you know, I believe if we aim at nothing, I think Zig Ziglar said that, we will hit it every time, right? So I believe we need to have goals. What it is that we want to do? What type of impact do we want to have? How much money do we want to make? People mm-hmm. say, I want to make six figures in my business. Okay, do you know what that looks like a month? That's $8,333.33 a month, right? Aim at it so that you know how many books you need to sell, how many courses you need to have, right? Uh, S is another um, a part of this process, systems and strategies. One of the things that I found out is that that sometimes we don't need to work harder, we need to work smarter. And so there are things out there that we can implement in our business. And again, that goes back to coaching. You know, you don't know what you don't know. So find out what's out there to help you to really establish your business. And then H, you know, although there are ways to work smarter, not harder, you still need to hustle. And I like to say it this way, hustle until you don't have to, because those systems and those strategies, they really should work for you in such a way that at some point you've got other people helping to to, you know, work your vision and also to just really make sure that, you know, you're making money in your sleep if those systems and strategies aren't working. So that's kind of that little uh, acronym that I use, C-A-S-H. But the first thing is get a coach. And that's where I come in, right? That's why I love what I do to kind of help people get started. Do you believe that everyone has a gift? You mentioned, you know, do, what could you do all day and, you know, Mm -hmm. not get paid for it? But Do we all have a gift that we need to tap into and should we be using those gifts to further drive our purpose? Yes, I absolutely believe that everybody has a gift. We were all born with something that we have been gifted to do, something very unique to us. And again, as I've been over the years, just as a pastor, as a business coach, you know, I have seen what might be to others something so insignificant lead people into their purpose, lead people into their business. And so we should take no gift for granted. I believe we've all been equipped with something that can be a gift to the world. Well, it is spring. Spring is spring is kind of like, you know, that whole new beginning thing. We feel like, okay, this is new. I have to say a lot of the t- jobs over the years have always, for some reason, started in the spring. It's just that whole sense of renewal. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I don't know if everyone has that feeling of sense of renewal right now because of everything that's going on. And a lot of people may be in somewhat of a funk, if you may say. And and how do you get out of that? I mean, there are people that really maybe even once were very motivated, but because of the things that are going on, they feel a little defeated and they're in a funk. How do you get yourself out of that, out of the doldrums? You know, Raquel, what I found out is often what we focus on, we magnify. And so one of the things that I tell people is write down everything that you're thankful for, because there is got to be at least one good thing happening in your life. If it's just, I woke up this morning, right? Keep a thank, <laughs> uh, some type of gratitude journal and just write down all of the things that are going right. All of the things that are good in your life and make it a regular practice and focus on those things. I believe what we focus on, we magnify. And as we begin to focus on the good, then it will begin to really drown out all of the negative things going on in our life. So let's talk a little bit more about these, the, the career uh, changes that have been going on, the great resignation, people, you know, reevaluating, saying, you know what, I don't like what I'm being paid here. I don't like how I'm being treated here. Let's go somewhere mm-hmm. else. I mean, there's really a, a huge movement of people doing that. Let's talk about flipping careers. And, and you know, mm-hmm. when I talk to people of a certain age, as I am as well, it's scary to think that, OK, well, I have 30 years of experience in this field, but I really have a dream of being a florist or, or whatever it may be <laughs> to change, yeah. make a drastic change in your career is, is so it just seems like such a scary thing, even if it's in your heart that you would like to do. How do you get over that? Fear can really hold you back, right? Oh, my goodness. I'm telling you, fear will paralyze you. It will absolutely paralyze you. And fear is tormenting. It really, Mm. really is. And I've seen so many people not go for what it is that they feel like they've been called to because of fear. And so for me personally, I've learned that fear has an antithesis, if you will, the opposite of fear is faith. And so you've got to figure out what you believe in. What is it that you believe is? And for me, you know, as you've heard, um, my faith is in God, but you have to figure out what your faith is in. And when you really operate in faith, it has a way of overcoming your fear. The other thing on a more very practical level is I like to go through everything that possibly could go wrong. (laughs) If I do it, you know what I mean? Because you cannot conquer what you won't confront. And so when I'm scared to do something, I'll write a list. Okay. This is the worst case scenario. I'm also a speaker coach. So (laughs) I deal with a lot of people who are afraid to speak in public. And so I go, okay, I want you to write down what is the absolute worst thing that could happen if you get in front of people. And so they go through the list and I'm like, okay, now could you survive that? And I'm like, oh yeah, I guess I could. Okay, now get out there on that stage and rock it, right? <laughs> so same thing, you know, that it goes with starting business. I want you to write out, you know, the cons, all of the things that could go wrong and address them. If there's ways in which you can address those things, that gives you a little bit more confidence to step out on what you believe you've been called to do. It's springtime, and at this point, a lot of people have already fallen off their New Year's resolutions. They probably fell off a long time ago. (laughs) And, um, you know, we we talked about resolutions at the beginning of this year, and I I always wanted to check back and talk about, you know, how's that going? Just because you've fallen off, it doesn't mean that you can't really follow through. So when it comes to making these New Year's resolutions and, you know, we fell off and we fall, we we fail, and then we go, ah, forget it, and we're just not going to get back to it. But you don't have to do that. I mean, just because it's you fell. Isn't that part of the process of progress and and success? Absolutely. I believe in failing forward. (laughs) I have learned more from my failures than I have from my successes. You know, I believe sometimes you win and sometimes you learn. And so if you look at life that way, um, it really helps you to approach your failures differently. And I'm no longer afraid to fail. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't like to fail. But when I do, I, I usually look at the situation and say, okay, what could I do differently? And the second iteration, the second chance, the third or fifth chance sometimes <laughs> that I have to do something, it's going to be better than the first time. So I really learned that, you know, within failure is really 
success wrapped up. Failing forward. Yeah, that's something that has to be taught because the reaction, that feeling of failure is just something that nobody nobody wants it from the time you're little. And you're told Mm -hmm. that, you know, you you try to do something and that feeling of having not been successful kind of stays with you. And we don't like that feeling. But like you said, we can learn from it. We can absolutely learn from it. And if you look at, I, I took a, a study, I did a study on all of the people I admire from Oprah Winfrey, you know, all of them, Tyler Perry, Tony Robbins, whoever, and they have more stories of failure. Mm-hmm. You know, if we look at Walt Disney, you know, who was rejected over and over again, you know, with his, his characters and things like that. And you find out that the people that we really love and admire failed first. It gives you the confidence in knowing that you too can make it if you fail forward. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You, Joy, are known to recite a quote that says, with uh, every crisis, there is an opportunity. How true is that? You know, and I wish I could claim that as my own. Um, I got that from Dr. Miles Monroe. Um, He wrote a whole book about that. And I believe that this pandemic is a great example of that. My business actually grew in the midst of a pandemic. Um, I think, as you mentioned earlier, that people were looking at this as an opportunity to do something different. They started to look at their life different. They started reevaluating who they are. What do they want out of life? What are their goals? And so, I again, I just believe that life, I'm sure you've heard that, that it's 90% how we respond to it. It's 10% what happens and 90% um, of how we respond to it. My story is that um, I have uh, something called Crohn's disease. And I like to say it this way, I have Crohn's disease, but it doesn't have me. And I've decided to take that pain and make it a platform for me. I decided to actually use Crohn's disease and all that I've gone through with it um, to my advantage. And so I've treated all of my life that way. Any failures that I experienced, anything that looked like loss, I actually used that, turned it upside down and made it work for me. So that's true to me because it's my story. It's actually my personal journey uh, that is absolute truth. Yeah. I think we really need to learn how to channel that, Mm -hmm. you know, with, with struggle, you know, can come progress. And we see that in history in general. So we can use that same edict in our own lives with struggle can come progress. Yes. Use your setbacks as a setup Mm. for your comeback. I love saying that. Say that one more time. Say that again. Yes. Use your setbacks as a setup for your comeback. Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) And if you think about an arrow, I say it this way all the time. And before an arrow gets released, that thing has to draw back first. And the further back the arrow goes, the further that thing will be released. And so if you look at your life that way, I don't care if you are listening today, how far back you feel like you've fallen. I don't care if this pandemic knocked you all the way down. The further back you've gone, that's a setup for you to be released further. So be encouraged in that. I love saying that. (laughs) I've I've never heard that. And I love that. That is, that is awesome. You know, Joy, you, you've written a couple of books. We want to talk about that a little bit. Um, Roadmap to Destiny, a 21 day devotional for those on the pathway to purpose and get up five steps to bouncing back when life knocks you down and you co-authored it with your husband. So I actually did that book alone, but I co-authored a book called Home Team with my husband, How to Win on the Marriage Field. But yes, I wrote those two books. Uh, Roadmap to Destiny is really my personal journey and how I got to this place of motivational speaking and all that I do in the area of coaching. And the start off of that book is this, think big, start small and just do it. Those are the first three chapters. And I believe if you can think as big as you will, remember when you were little to be the president of the United States, you know, sometimes life happens 
that will kind of really, really snatch those dreams from us. But I try to get people to recapture the big dream for their life. And then the rest of the book is helping them to navigate that, that pathway to purpose. But then when I wrote the book and I had so many people go through the book, I did a virtual book club and I've had hundreds of people to go through the book. That book has gone to Bermuda, Africa, Belgium, mm. St. Thomas, up and down the East Coast. And you know what I found out around day 10 of the 21 day journey, people stopped. They were quitting. And I realized it's because they had not yet gotten up from that place where they were disappointed, the rejection, you know, the failures. And I realized that book needed a prequel. Mm -hmm. So I wrote, get up. I wrote that like as quick as I could, because I realized people needed to get up before they started moving on the road to destiny. So that's how those books came about. Talk about the book that you wrote with your husband. I, I don't think I could do this. No, I don't think I could write a book with my husband or do a, a too many. Listen, him. I always love to joke. You know what? That book tested our, writing the book tested our marriage, uh -huh. as you can imagine, mm -hmm. um, you know, in a fun way. But we have two different approaches, right? To right. writing and to completing a project, which made, it's very interesting, but the end product was absolutely amazing. And I'm sure you can imagine whose idea it was to use a sports analogy uh, in the writing of the book, right? <laughs> um, but what we talk about is this, and you know, we're talking Philly, right? I am a diehard Philadelphia Eagles fan, so don't get it twisted. <laughs> I want you to imagine the Philadelphia Eagles and the Dallas Cowboys sharing a locker room, right? Just imagine the brawl that would break out. And so we use that thought as a foundation and say, you know what, that's what many of our marriages are like. Mm. It's like two different teams sharing a locker room when the truth of the matter is we win more games when we have home field advantage. So we really take our readers through um, some of the steps that they could use to make sure that they're on the same team as they approach life and family. Wow. Wow. Mars mm -hmm. Venus. It's it's real. It's <laughs> Our so approaches real. are so different. So to real. Yeah, it is really real. But so uh, real. the home field advantage. I, I like that. Yes. So tell us about the conference that is coming up in September. I know you're taking things on the road. Tell us all about that. <sighs> Yeah, I'm so excited. So again, that book was birthed out of my book, Roadmap to Destiny. And so I've been doing this now for seven years and we're taking it on the road to Orlando, Florida, September 15th and 17th. And the theme this year is release. And so what I'm excited about is people finding their purpose, as we talked about earlier, who am I? What, you know, what am I here for? To find out what their purpose and their destiny is. And then by the end of the conference, release them back into the world to do exactly what it is that they've been called to do. And so we've been doing that now for the last seven years. And it's just so exciting to hear, you know, the testimonials of those who've been a part of the conference. And, you know, they found out who they are. They found out their role in their you know, in their jobs or they started their businesses, they wrote their books, they found mm -hmm. their voice. And so to, to actually take this on the road and hopefully to, you know, to get some other people along the way as we head down there, I'm just excited about this. Any parting words that you want to make sure that people understand about, you know, relaunching their lives or their careers or Anything new that they'd like to venture upon? They don't have a life coach, but they have you for a few minutes. Yes. What do you want to make sure that people, people understand? You know what? I think a great way to really end this, this conversation is do it afraid. Do it afraid. Just do it. You know, I don't want to portray the, this false a thought that when I do something, I always have all the confidence in the world and all that. Sometimes I just have to do it afraid. And so as we talked about your faith, overcome your fears, and, and we talked about, you know, understanding who you are and why you're here. Uh, it's scary. It's very scary to leave a job. Maybe that you've been at for 20, 30 years. It's scary, but time is winding up. Life is too short. We've heard it. YOLO. You only live once. <laughs> right. Then go for it. And if you need to do it afraid, just do it. <laughs> wow. Great advice. All right. Joy Morgan is uh, CEO of Joy Morgan Motivates and Joy Morgan Ministries. Joy, where can we find you if we need to uh, reach out to you? 
You can go to www.joymorganmotivates.com. That's joymorganmotivates.com. And listen, if you contact me and you see one of the programs I'm offering and you heard this interview, let me know. All right, Joy. Thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate it. And I feel extremely motivated, I have to say. (laughs) Wonderful. What a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Sheridan Howard brings us this week's Newsmaker. Against the backdrop of anti-racism protests and the COVID-19 pandemic, growing tensions between the Black, Brown, and Asian communities have not only been recognized, but also prioritized by local organizers. Organizers like Dr. Esther Castillo, a scholar, educator, and mental health advocate. She's made a point of doing her part to bridge that gap between these communities by putting an emphasis on inclusion. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Now, doctor, you say the work that you do in the community, it's just who you are. I think it's in my blood. I hint to this very diverse, multiracial background that I have. So I am partly Chinese, like my mom's side's uh, Chinese. My dad's side's from Nicaragua. And uh, I grew up in Macau. For those of you who don't know, it was a Portuguese colony for over 500 years. And uh, while I was a teenager, Macau had a political transition to become a Chinese territory. Like just the background that I had, uh, it it was very early on that I got very committed to inclusion and diversity because I I think it it is because no matter where I go, I feel like I don't completely fit in. So I want to create that space where I can fully fit in and I want to create spaces for other people and let them know that they can completely fit in as well. And your work consists of everything from mental health advocacy to education. I do quite a bit of things. And right now, uh, I um, am uh, the programs manager at PCDC, Philadelphia Chinatown Development Corporation. So um, two years ago, uh, um, I founded this mental health program in under PCDC. It's called the Chinese Immigrant Families Wellness Initiative. So that part of my work focuses mostly on destigmatizing the importance of mental health, like promoting awareness of mental health in the Asian immigrant communities. And uh, we do a lot of like intergenerational activities and really promoting healing across generations. So that's part of my work. I also Also at my work, I push a lot of the vaccine efforts promoting the COVID-19 vaccination uh, in at first in the Chinese communities and then it started to spread to other Asian communities. And uh, we are looking forward to expanding it and join hands with another CDC in in the Southwest, Akana, who serve mostly African and Caribbean immigrant populations to promote vaccination together. Also do quite a bit of organizing between Black and Asian communities. And this work that you do, it's not only professional, it's also personal because you have a special friendship in your life that's really informed a lot of the things that you do in the community. I got so much passion of it because my best friend is Black. And I I know a lot of people would say, oh, my friends are Black, but that's that's not what I meant. Like, she's like my family. Our friendship completely transformed the both of us. And I'm forever grateful for her friendship and her wisdom and her kindness and her love. And she's like, she's like my family because we we both learned so much from our friends with each other. We want other people to have it. I want other people to have that love. And so uh, um, I also do quite a bit of like Black and Asian organizing. She's an activist herself. So her name's Mary Baxter, Mary Enoch Baxter. And uh, she does activism work around like uh, mass incarceration, women who through her, I'm like learning how she's doing activism and um, we're learning from each other. It's super exciting. So let's talk about the workshops that you're doing. More recently, I also started to like organize workshops for anti-violence and like violence prevention. So we are in the talk with the diversity office at uh, Temple University, which is where I graduated from. I, I basically grew up at Temple. Like, I went to undergrad there. And so I knew that when uh, my workplace asked me to organize some sort of uh, anti-violence workshop between the Asian and Black community, I'm like, I need to go back to Temple. That's my place. That's with my people. So we are in the discussion to uh, organize some workshops that focus both on like informing each, uh, informing 
the Black and Asian communities about each other's histories and how they intertwine and how they're different, right? We're not all the same, but we have similarities and we can learn from each other. In addition to wanting to tapping into that intellectual part and educating people, because I used to be, uh, before I got into activism work, I used to be an educator. I'm very passionate about education. I truly believe that education can change life, but I also know that there are limitations with education because it doesn't necessarily get to people's hearts. It teaches people about new information. So it, it enriches their minds, but it might not touch people's hearts. And I know that from my organizing work and my community work, I noticed that people get drawn into doing something and into taking action. And when people do that, you need to touch their hearts, but not just their mind. So you need to educate their mind. You need to uh, feed their mind, but you need to feed their soul. We have a lot of things that are alike. We also have a lot of things that are different that we need to acknowledge, right? I, I know that in the U.S., we tend to like this kind of believe that, oh, we're all the same, but we're not all the same. Uh, and it's okay. And that's that's the beauty about it, that, that we're different, that we can learn from each other. If everyone is the same, then we can't grow. Um, and the, and in terms of the tension, yes, there, there is tension. And I think from my organizing efforts, I know that people know about that. And I just want to stress that this tension is no accident. It's not, also not any individual's fault. It's very much structured in history and geographies. And I'm saying geographies, like I'm talking about like red linings. I'm talking about these like pockets of spaces in our city that are intentionally being disinvested and how like poverty is created by past policies and, and the kind of willingness to turn a blind eye to the development of Black neighborhoods. And you say a lot of this is historically based, right? If you look into history, Asian immigrants, a lot of us came in the 60s. We've been here for a long, long time. You know, uh, I, my great, great, great grandfather, actually, um, he came to the U.S. in the 19th century, late 19th century. But then there are also more recent immigrants. And a lot of the immigrants that we see in Philly who come from Asia, came in the 60s and the 70s up until the 80s. And, and, and it is very important to understand the context in which immigrants come to America, their economic background when they come, and their options when they come. And so when, when you think about a lot of uh, Asian immigrants, uh, when they first came here, they don't really speak the language. The only place where they can settle down, people usually go to Chinatown first or they go to their families. We're talking about these people who have some money, not a lot. So they can't really, when they think about uh, how to, when, in, when people think about Asian immigrants and Asian immigrant communities, people don't think about our relationship with racism, but it exists and is very prominent in our life. And it's so prominent that it creates a very limited worldview of what life can look like in America. And so like people do that by going to Chinatown to live and work, to, to eat, to avoid racism, to avoid discrimination. So a lot of the tactics is really from the Asian immigrant mindset is how do I avoid racism, right? And people do that by, they, they're thinking that, okay, I don't really speak English, so maybe I can't do a lot of them. They look at other immigrants and what they have done before, right? They open up small businesses. That's something they can do, right? They can learn easy restaurant English while raising my family, while not being oppressed and discriminated, right? Because I heard other stories where immigrants went to like factories to work or they work in some of these like mainstream stores. They they experience a lot of nasty stuff and they want to avoid that. And then the, then the immigrant parents want their kids to avoid that. So, so like, so like when the immigrants came over and the family said that, okay, uh, we have this, we, we want to open this restaurant or open up this store. And the only option usually is in the black neighborhood because rent is cheap. Land is cheap. Everything is cheaper and everything is cheaper for a reason, right? For all these historical reasons why black neighbors, neighborhoods have been, is invested very intentionally for many, many, many years. Uh, and, and that's something that the government has put policy to support that. Um, and, and so for the, from the immigrant perspective, they move into these black neighborhoods and uh, they don't speak the language. They don't know the culture. They don't know the history because the black history is not being taught. It's a school. And so they came in and then all they see is the TV and the media and the media portrays black people as dangerous, right? So then there is this fear 
like I don't understand. I'm like in a new country. I don't speak the language. So like there, so this kind of conflict is designed. I don't know how there would not be any conflict when you put people in those kind of situations. And how does the work that you do really offset what we were just talking about? This is hard work. And then I've talked <laughs> to so many people and then there are cynics. They were like, it's been like that for years. What do you think you can do to change that? Right. So there are a lot of that negative you know, thoughts, but I don't let myself drown in those thoughts. And I think my first step was really to expose myself to different people. I know it seems very cheesy, cliche, but really like you need to listen. I need to listen. I need to learn. I need to respect people who are different from me. And for me, it's easier because I come from such a diverse background. Like my family is of different races, so I'm used to that. So for example, I had this really interesting conversation when I was organizing this, well, I am organizing this uh, Black and Asian Solidarity event in April. And then, uh, and actually this event has been in the making for six months or maybe longer. <laughs> and and um, the, the reason why it has, has to be so long was because when we first had the idea to uh, do some sort of uh, Asian and Black organizing on the ground, I was doing some community work and then I got in touch with uh, Carla Ballard. Uh, she is the founder of Ying, uh, which is an app for group sharing and skill sharing. She has, when we became friends and then she talked about she has like Filipino families. And it's so interesting, like all these people that are mixed a lot of these people that I that want to do this work are mixed and they have families from both sides. So that that was interesting. And then and then uh, when we wanted to throw an event, we just didn't feel like there was this where we don't have enough energy to support such an event. It feels if it, it doesn't feel authentic to do it. It feels forced, if that makes sense. It feels very forced. We talked and then we were like, okay, we don't want to do like a big scale event because it feels forced. It feels performative. It doesn't feel like it's rooted in something real. So we were like, let's build something real. And then to build something real takes a long time because you're talking about building relationship with intention. Building relationship with, with intention is the work, right? The event is just, the, the event is just like an illustration of the work, but it is not the work. The work is meeting with each other, talking to each other, building a relationship with each other, talking about our issues together, telling our stories to each other. And so we started meeting every month. We would have like small gathering. We would go to like a black owned restaurant. And the next month we go to an Asian owned restaurant. We talk to the, the restaurant owners about what we're doing. We, you know, we, we try to, we try to create um, an environment where everybody is intentional about building this solidarity and this alliance. And through talking to people, through uh, doing this work and, at the same time, we see how other people see us, right? Because like, I remember in December, we had a uh, happy hour event at the Booker's uh, restaurant in West Philly. And uh, we occupied this like corner of the restaurant. And then here we are like a group of, I think like 25 people and half Asian, half black. And I saw the people like who are not part of our group looking into our group. They looked at us like, what's going on? Like this, like Asian and black people like having fun together. Like that's a scene that I don't normally see on TV, you know, but we had so much fun. We just want to have fun with each other and we want to learn what it feels like to be in the presence of each other and to have joy together, right? Because there's so much negativity. There's so much hurt, so much trauma in our history. And we might not be in a position where we are ready to open up the wound, to talk about it. But I think we're at the stage where we want to be with each other more and let's create some fun time, let's have some joy together. And maybe the next step is like, okay, we have a relationship now. Let's talk, you know, within our family. And a lot of the impetus for all of this work comes from the fact that a lot of the people doing the work are also mixed. And this is partly their personal passion. One of our uh, biggest organizer in our group, she's Blasian. So mm -hmm. her her uh, mom is Filipino and her dad, uh, I think he's from uh, the Congo. Seeing how cultures fuse together. Our ancestors asked ask us to do this work. They're demanding <laughs> us to do this work. Now, building the bridge between the Black, Brown and Asian communities is important. Why? Why in particular for Filipinos? 
Philadelphia. I think we occupy a very specific set of spaces and we have we possess a very unique set of privileges that we don't have. Uh, like Asian don't have what black communities have and black communities ha uh, don't have what Asian communities have. And I want to be specific about it. So um, for a lot, uh, in, in a lot of spaces in the Asian uh, American community, I see a strong desire of being seen, being heard, right? And uh, for a lot of Asian uh, immigrants and also Asian Americans, we feel like we are being portrayed as the perpetual foreigners. So, uh, and also that very uh, limited space that we put ourselves in to avoid racism also uh, kind of comes back to us when, when, uh, when, we are, when we recognize and notice that we don't have the cultural capital to tell people about our stories, to uh, tell people about our needs. And we're not very articulate about that. We're not very articulate about our needs, you know? And, um, and, and, and so like I, when, when we look into the black communities and for, for the years of, you know, since the civil rights movement and even before, you know, like all these years of black leadership fighting for more rights. And I think the Asian American community need that guidance. We don't have the ancestral knowledge to fight racism. We simply don't. Like our coping mechanism has been to turn a blind eye, pretend we don't see it, create our own community and avoid it at all costs. And then when I talk to the Black communities uh, and they look at us and see our economic privileges, and I truly, truly want that the Asian community would be more giving in terms of sharing our wealth and redistributing wealth across our communities. And so we can share those skill sets. Uh, we can share the skills, we can share the wealth, we can share our abundance together. And I think that's why it's very important for us to build with each other, because not only we can build wealth and build our neighborhoods, but we can also grow as people. And that's why we're here, right? Thank you so much for being here, doctor. After speaking with Dr. Castillo, to get an on-the-ground perspective, I decided to visit a few Philadelphia neighborhoods. I went to Germantown, Chinatown, and Rittenhouse to hear a few points of view from Philadelphians on the topic. And the people I talked to didn't hold back. Meet Preska, John, Sheck, and Edward. What do you think the issues really are between the Black, Brown, and Asian communities? Is this something that we can fix? I think anti-Blackness in general needs to be addressed. That's the underlying issue with almost everything that we're facing in this country. There are instances where um, Black people can be prejudiced against Asian people as well. We need to be aware of what we're doing, what we're saying, how we can help each other. Now, John, you're in Chinatown. You're looking around. Do you think there's any way that we can bridge these two communities? Like in terms of bridging the different community, I think they have to have like associations, bridge two different cultures. Exposure. Yeah, exposure came from a different culture background. I'm from Malaysia. I'm from one of the Asian country. I mean, Malaysia is, it's, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not by a single race. So we have three different races. Shek, now you're from Germantown. From your experience as a black man, what are your thoughts about the black, brown, and Asian relationship? Are there tensions and can this be improved? Of the black and Asian dynamic, both sides get a messed up version of where we live, you know, where we from in America. I feel like we both minorities, but me wearing my hoodie right now with a do-rag, but I'm definitely a college-educated person. I know I'm look that different. Like, if I was wearing a suit walking down the street, I look different. You know, with certain people, it don't matter if they're wearing a suit or if they're wearing their house clothes, they look the same. But we've been, been judged how we look since the beginning of the time. If we looked at by our skin color first before we looked at, like, about who we are. So we always fight in that battle of, of, proving, of, proving, of, of proving a point. <laughs> now, Edward, you're an Asian-American who's grown up with a lot of different influences. What are your thoughts on the topic? I think people need to educate themselves on, on history. Uh, I grew up in a black-brown community. I think the problem that we find ourselves in is that we don't speak to other people and we don't experience other things, immersing yourself in other cultures. So that's the best way to be able to bridge that gap. That can have a profound impact on how you view people. So that's the best way, I think, to be able to bridge that gap. Where do you think the problems stem from exactly? Ignorance, but then also with the algorithms, with social media, uh, the media that's being broadcasted and being you know, earmarked towards you, you get sucked into your own beliefs and then the things that you believe in, it's, it's self-fulfilling in, in terms of what you research is gonna back up what you think and believe. Whether it's right or wrong. Right, so you should be objective in everything that you read and be critical in what you're hearing and, and thinking. Even if it supports what you think, be critical of it and we'll be all better off and be more caring. Love each other. 
it's obvious everyone thinks, of course, there's improvement to be made, but it can be done. I'm Charity Howard. At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Devro Advanced Behavioral Health. KYW's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker is a West Philly native, best-selling author, educator, and activist, Lorraine Carey. She's bridging Philly through the craft of writing and storytelling, using that to connect our youth and future generations to history and legacies. Ms. Carey, thank you so much for joining us on Bridging Philly. Now, I know that you have a very diverse career background, right? Tell us about your path to becoming an author and playwright. I did news magazines at the beginning of my career, uh, and I also have done teaching. So throughout my career, I've done writing and teaching. So I did Time, did Newsweek, uh, did TV Guide as an editor, so sort of mass market accessible. I love accessible. I love for the people I write about to be able to read what I write. That matters a lot to me. And it carried over into writing uh, a memoir about going to boarding school, um, three novels, sort of one based in history, uh, in a, a runaway based on a real runaway case of a woman who came through Philadelphia. That's a price for child. One looking at um, sort of the 20s and 30s and, and lynching as a, as a way to enforce um, the, the uh, Black subjectivity, you know, as a way to, to put a, seal, uh, a low ceiling on Black advancement with, with terror that was, um, if not state-sponsored, certainly state-approved. Um, I did a girlfriend novel just because you can't always write. <laughs> and also most recently a, um, a, a memoir about taking care of my grandmother at the end of her life called Lady Sitting that is about a life-death family. So that's, that's my, my writing stuff. That while my children were young and at home, I wrote books I love books, of course, but but also you can get up at 4.30 in the morning and do them by yourself. What I couldn't do were performance-based forms that, where you have to collaborate with people, go to rehearsals, stay late, go to... So I just have started writing those in the last five years, which is, um, I started with play. And this, my general Tubman was the first... Uh, one. Um, and I'm also writing opera uh, libretti. I've always loved opera. One of your more recent events was at the African American Museum, honoring the legacy of Harriet Tubman. Tell us about your involvement in preserving her legacy. You know, it was, it's so beautiful to watch this interconnection there. We have an understanding that African American or the African diaspora understands time past, present, and future as interconnected. For me, that's at the heart of my play, My General Tubman, is that moving through. Young people understand that as well. So to have at the African American Museum, students from Girard College, uh, my own students from the University of Pennsylvania, as well as some um, African American Museum uh, older folks, to have them there to watch bits that Arden Theater beautifully put together and brought in actors, um, Aaron Bell, uh, Sarah uh, Glico, Glico, and Morgan Sharice Hall, to play these scenes, to watch this happen with the young people, and then ask them, as well as people outside you know, in virtual land 
to give toasts to Tubman really did help connect Tubman and her activism to the work of Philadelphia voting youth activists today. You know that Harriet Tubman that we all know is the Underground Railroad, but she lived into her 90s. She lived to 1913. She was part of the suffrage movement. And even when white American suffrage groups, um, you know, tried to move black people out, she, she was undaunted. I mean, rules didn't daunt her, right? She kept on going, understanding that she is a black woman as a uh, a Civil War spy, as the person who had commanded battleships in the Civil War, as someone who had gotten through, lived a life of poverty. And still, she knew, um, she knew that she should vote. She knew that she needed to have a say. So she kept at it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that voting rights. I know that you have done your own sort of activism in this space. You started an organization, Vote That John. What led to that? Both that John started because my own students who were writing for publication on a, a wonderful publication online called Safe Kids Stories, after the Parkland, uh, Florida shooting, after the March for Our Lives, when my students wrote about that, they then came into class and said to me, what you need to be doing is have us focus on voting. That is, after the March for Our Lives said, youth has to vote. That's what my my bossy students told me. And of course, they were right. That summer, I met with a few of those students um, and other young people all summer to think about what kind of group we could create. Vote That John is specifically working to be a platform uh, to amplify, spread information, um, write about, tweet about, Instagram about, TikTok about the work of, of youth activists. In the summer of 2020, uh, through a wonderful uh, donor, we were able to have a summer program of 20 interns, high school and college. Um, we don't always have that, though. And my students at Penn. Um, write things, but are not, I don't have an army of kids out on the, on the ground. So we connect with primarily um, other youth activist groups, the most active being PA Youth Vote, um, sort of out of Central High School with Tom Quinn. We've also worked with My School Votes, we've, lots of others. But we sort of the idea is we want to take what they do and write about it. Here's the thing. When you're an activist, you are so busy doing the thing. And now you do a lot of work with students and youth these days. So let's talk a little bit about how you found yourself in this space of really empowering, advocating and writing for young minds. What I'm doing is not just teaching lessons. What I'm trying to do is share the experience. Right. So as opposed to so it's a it's a fairy tale rather than a fable. Uh, Thinking about the stories that I told my own children where they have agency to make sure they have the children, the the people in the story have agency. So the young people are not getting stories like we often give them in school district approved books, which is stories where the African-American people are observed by someone else. So you're doing exactly what Du Bois says we shouldn't do, which is look on in amused pity and, you know, with pity and contempt. So they looked on with pity. Well, I didn't want my kids reading that. So I told them stories where people got themselves up, young people got up, hid under a hotel, climbed up in a tree, waited for this boat to come, hid under, like put a turp, put a sack, over themselves, when in the bottom, like all those things where they did it themselves, because I wanted those children to imagine. If you can't feel it, you can't, you can't know it. So that's, that's what I'm t- trying to do with children's stories. 
the spiritual, intellectual, vocational refreshment of working with young people in Vote That John. I mean, just watching their and, and being able to support them, to support them to create something adequate to their needs. So I love this coming of age, this civic coming of age. It feels to me that um, we have not adequately told them that this voting business and not just voting, but getting getting a leg into the political life of the country will allow them to influence the decisions we're making that will influence their lives 20 years from now. What are you working on now that you're excited about? I'm very excited to be writing another play uh, and working on um, that with Arden Theater. It's a play based on um, the Lady Sitting memoir about taking care of, uh, of our grandmother. And it really is a play about end of life, caregiving, love, fear, big fear, big fear. Um, and, and, and us facing work. I mean, the thing we always have in our lives every day is death. So I'm excited about that. Um, hoping to begin a workshop sometime this year with that. To keep up with Ms. Carey and her latest projects, you can visit her website, LorraineCarey.com. You can also find her on social media using her name. If you're interested in learning more about the organization Vote That John, you can find them on Instagram or Twitter at Vote That John. Thanks for joining us on Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. If you know someone who would make a great newsmaker, changemaker, or panel guest, message us on Twitter at Bridging Philly. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Shara Day Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.